0: Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am Brian Carman Today, I have the pleasure and the privilege of sitting with Norman Eisen, who I got to tell you, I've been a fan of yours for a while, Norman. Um, back before, well, you were called uh, Mr. No, I think, in the Obama administration and the and the guru of ethics, which I enjoyed a lot. But uh, I became a fan of yours again after reading the beginning of uh, The Last Palace and what you and your mother went through. So I want to go through all of that. Um, but st- I want to start with the ethics part of it. Um, because you or uh, the, the Obama administration didn't have a lot of ethical problems and we seem to have them now.
1: Well, Brian, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, I'm a big fan of yours, so right back at you. Um, and um, it is true that the uh, Obama administration managed to dodge the problems that are bedeviling the Trump administration. And of course, uh, we're talking um, uh, during a historic week because Paul Manafort is the latest uh, Trump uh, uh, former close associate uh, to uh, apparently uh, turn on the president, cut a cooperation deal. And this spectacle that we've seen is why my old friend, President Obama, I first met him in 1988 when we were both law first year law students. uh, uh, It's why my old friend, the president, asked me to come in to the White House to prevent a mess uh, like the one we have now, a mess of historic proportions never in American history have we seen so many ethics and legal and constitutional scandals so early in a presidential administration. From, day one. From before day one. Well, that's true. Yeah, you're right. From before day one. So President Obama brought, brought me in to prevent that. I, he asked me to start working on it uh, in the summer secretly, in the summer of 2008, when the very beginnings of what became the Obama presidential transition uh, were, were just starting out. And ethics were in the DNA of our work from day one. And, you know... Uh, 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 like uh, uh Doctor No, the hero in the James Bond movie. I was Mister No, your, the, villain, the villain, the yeah. villain. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. the villain. He's my namesake, yeah. so I'm very sympathetic to him. But he is a villain, uh, Doctor No. I um uh um tried to uh, tried to be his good analog as Mister No, and the president wanted that. He wanted somebody who would uh. At his uh, behest, enforce the rules because uh, an administration can so quickly go off the rails. Look at the Trump administration. Well, let's they- do that
0: for a second. Look, So when you came in, there are partisans, and just to play the devil's advocate, there are partisans yes. who say, look, we're just picking on Trump. He's no different than any. You just don't like him. And you're picking on him, and he's really a nice guy, and he's doing good things.
1: How do you respond to that? Well, I don't think even the Trump partisans think he's a nice guy. They think he's a <laughs> bastard. But uh, to, to paraphrase, but he's our bastard. That's what the Trump. <laughs> that's what the Trump people think, and you see them say that sometimes. I mean, yes. you travel sometimes yeah. with the presidency. Yeah. You see them say, "Yeah, we we didn't want a a snowflake to be president, right?" So with that's even his. That's even his fans uh, feel that way. But of course, most Americans, super majority of Americans with the president mired down in the mid-30s now, and I think those approval ratings are going to fall, uh, have a lot of uh, reservations about him. I am not picking on the president, Brian. It's been publicly reported, so I'm free now to disclose. I helped the Trump transition, trying to do for them what I did for the Obama transition. I did it as a proud Patriotic American. What did you do? I met with the Trump transition people at very senior levels over and over again to try to impart to them, here's how we did it in the Obama administration. You know... Never mind talk of pardons. We didn't have a conviction. We didn't have a trial. We didn't have a grand jury or an indictment or an investigation, an investigation of anybody in the White House. Whereas the so what did you do to the Trump administration that? is like a criminal law final exam in law school. I mean, it is a mess. Well, here's what we did. Number one, the first rule, and this is what has killed Trump. The first rule is tone at the top in any organization. I know that from, um, among other things, uh, you're kind enough to mention the last palace, my study of the fight for democracy over the past hundred years and counting. So Wilson took American democracy, moved it across the ocean, 1918, the end of World War, and it says, hey, we're going to do it this way now, guys. And he hybridized American and European styles of democracy. We've had this transatlantic project that's been anchored on both sides of the pond since then. And if you look at the success or failure of all those regimes, a hundred years of study, I'm bringing this, bringing to this question now, Brian. If you look at the success or failure, the first rule is tone at the top. So when you have creeps, autocrats, tyrants, dictators, killers at the top of regimes. Trump doesn't compare to the great autocrats of the 20th century. He's strictly penny ante. He
0: reminds Uh, me of a guy that has, uh, you know, always got picked last for kickball.
1: Small time grifter. He is the kickball and the rule of law. He's the ball and the rule of law is kicking him. And he, he put himself there yeah he does that he's so. small time he's a small time con man small compared to these major hudlums who dominated the century tone at the top when you've got those bad people at the top it creeps like uh like an oil spill uh a pollution a cancer stain uh, a a disease spreading through, and that's what's happened with Trump. Everybody sees the way he's trying to capitalize on the government. Maybe we'll talk about that. I'm well, yeah, suing him. Yeah. I have 300 open matters against the president in my watchdog capacity. Mark Zaid
0: um, is part of that. Yes. And, and so's, uh, uh, in Maryland, the is a part of that. Yes, I mean, the
1: Maryland and DCAGs, I'm co counseled yeah. with them. They're the lead counsel uh, in, in one over of our cases causes. over emoluments. Just an 18th century word for swag,
0: okay? <laughs> so what kind it's, of swag? Well, let's let's dive into that a little bit. What kind of swag is he is he grifting from the country?
1: Um, with this bad tone at the top and by the way it works the other way too brian because good tone at the top we had that with president obama and a good tone permeates the regime so that lesson comes out of my book with this bad bad tone at the top what trump is doing and he said it that's why i say it happened before day one during the camp uh, the uh, transition he announced with the famous piles of folders next to him i believe those folders were empty or they had blank pieces of paper in them they were props uh, he announces uh, well i'm gonna keep my businesses <clears throat> there's one little problem with that his businesses are raking in millions of dollars from governments including foreign governments where we have the strongest national interests. And that sets up a a conflict, and it's such a profound conflict. Take the Saudis, who want us to favor them in conflicts all over the Middle East and matters all over the world, oil, questions all over the world. And the Saudis are pumping money to him through his Trump hotel. Well, how can you not have a conflict? And our founders of our country and the framers of the Constitution knew that someday uh, Donald Trump would arise, who would say, I can take as much money as I want from the Saudis through my luxury hotel down the block from the White House. He said this actually, his position amounted to the following in court, Brian. The Saudis could rent a floor of rooms in my hotel, pay me millions of dollars a year, and we know they're doing business there. We don't know the exact amount. I'm going to find that out in discovery. They could rent an entire floor, leave them empty, pay me millions of bucks, and uh, there's nothing to stop them from doing it. Baloney. The constitution says a president cannot take cash or other things of value of any kind, whatever. From a foreign government. And that's what the judge has found. We can proceed to discovery on those claims in Maryland and D.C. Brian Frosch,
0: the uh, AG in Maryland, for example, said he thinks he's going to be able to get a a look at the uh, president's taxes because of the emoluments because of the suit. Do you think that's true?
1: Well, we're going to take, I won't comment on any specific piece of paper. I will say that Brian Frosch is one of the best lawyers I know. So I'm, and he's my co-counsel, he's our lead counsel. I'm certainly not going to disagree with him. And I will agree with him that we are going to do very searching discovery. I think it's very important to have those kinds of financial records. So, um, Uh, You know, we're going to do a very deep dive, but we also are going to be, and Brian is the first one to set this course, as well as the other lead counsel, Carl Racine, the DCAG. We want to move to trial fast because we think we have a winning case. We want to get our discovery. They're not going to
0: want to do that. They're going to try and put you off to the end of his administration. That is right. Well,
1: they'd like to go longer than the end of his administration (laughs) to put us off. And we're having that fight now. They've asked the court for delay. We're not going to tolerate that. And we've pushed back. We're fighting back. So we want to take discovery, we want to move quickly everything should be on the table. So Brian is right. That has to include uh, the president's personal personal financial records. And we'll see now. We're learning more every day. So we'll see exactly what we need.
0: So the emolument clause aside, and, and that's one way that he's making money, and certainly we haven't had that problem with a president in my lifetime anyway.
1: In nobody's <laughs> lifetime.
0: So right. Um, What else are we running across as far as ethical problems with this president?
1: Well, when you start in day one, and a bipartisan, uh, I have talked about this with the Bush Ethics Council, Richard Painter a lot, and with many others, uh, even uh, 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 this is not a left-right issue. All ethics experts are concerned about this. Um, the president uh, also has the problem of nepotism, okay? These are all the oh, issues. Personally lining <laughs> your pockets. That's like uh, uh, one of these uh, dictators that I write about in The Last Palace, that my five characters fought for democracy. Even the German general I write about, Brian, he fought turned for- around and fought for democracy, and the dictators they fought have... What I'm about to describe to you, the dictators and the dictatorships have this in common with President Trump and his administration. Number one, personally lining the pockets. They say Vladimir Putin is the richest man in the world. Number two, nepotism. The only ones they trust, they have a paranoid turn of mind like Trump. He thinks everybody's out to get him. Uh, the only one well, that
0: Casey might be right. It's his own fault. <laughs> well, it course. didn't
1: start that way. Even I said, give him a chance. Right. Even Everybody did. I said that a lot but of he people forfeited did. that. How did the he forfeited that? Only one they trust. Part of it was this nepotism. Number 2, they surround themselves with their family members. What are Jared or Ivanka, his son-in-law and daughter doing at the highest levels of government? They have no government experience whatsoever.
0: What the hell is Kim Kardashian doing talking about prison reform?
1: And then okay, that brings us that brings us to another problem. Uh, who is doing the policy? You have the cabinet members and the White House staff, and they have ethics problems. So you openly see a Kellyanne Conway selling Ivanka's products from the podium of the press room where you s- spend so much time. And you have the Office of Government Ethics saying it's a violation. What does Trump do? And this happens over and over again. He ignores it. Nothing. He. Rumor has it. In ethics circles, that he called his ethics lawyer into the White House Oval Office and chastised him for daring to mildly rebuke Kellyanne Conway. And this has repeated itself literally hundreds of times. So then you get to the EPA. You get to the cabinet. Exactly. We've already lost. It's a historic uh, degree of attrition. You lost Pruitt, you lost Shulkin, uh, and you lost Price, all because of the same kind of tone at the top that they've borrowed from the president of uh, enriching themselves. So, And there's many others now. The accusations are sur- swirling. Ross, insider trading. Um, uh, um, Madman Mick Mulvaney. Uh, mul- yes. Mulvaney's shenanigans. But also Zinke. Look oh, yeah. At how many. Uh, I, there's m- more than 10 investigations going on into Zinke. Total lack of oversight from the president's cronies in Congress. His first two supporters themselves have been indicted. Right. Duncan Hunter and— That's true. uh, And— I know you're talking about. Collins. Yes. Chris Collins. Well, but let's— Wait, I want to—I'm almost done. I got one more thing to say. So then all of this mess— comes back around to where it started, Trump. And we predicted this 18 months ago. If the president goes this way, he's gonna head down the slippery slope. And what's at the bottom? Criminal liability. Today, that tone at the top, I believe, has resulted in a complete lack of self-restraint, a lack of respect for ethics and law that led Trump to try to bend Comey. When Comey wouldn't bend, he fired him, and he did it, I believe, with, there's substantial evidence of corrupt intent. And now Mueller's bearing down. You ask any of these people who've pled guilty or Paul Manafort today who was forced to capitulate. You ask them how dangerous Bob Mueller is. He is a direct threat to this president because of our theme. The president has made himself into the kickball. He's created this mess.
0: Yes. Well, I believe that he has created this. I don't think there's anybody that would disagree with that. And, But ethically, I mean, how do you – I mean, I sometimes want to list what I find myself to be just extreme ethical violations. Some of the tweets – Yes. Some of, uh, some of the actions with his staff, some of the actions that he takes on the campaign trail. Hatch so Act, violations, hatch act political violation. law. Let's talk a little bit about what's the Hatch Act and how is that a violation?
1: Well, my, my watchdog group crew has just um – uh, a great group, filed. by the way. Thank you. We've just filed a another batch of these Hatch Act complaints. They are violating this rule. When I was in the White House, I was the ethics czar. I was Mr. No. They used less flattering. Terms to describe me, I was a shocked. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I was shocked when one of my friends described me as the fun sponge. I heard the that guy one too. That was my friend. <laughs> uh, my mother, who I write about in this book, her favorite was the ethics czar. She loved to say to people, Brian, that's a great, term. it's the only time a czar has ever been good for the Jews. <laughs> she loved that line um but uh when i was uh when i was there in the white house i was also the chief political lawyer because there are rules the law says you can't use official resources to benefit political campaigns the hatch act and we have literally filed dozens of complaints and it and it's been found many of them have been found by trump's own appointee who's heading the hatch enforcement uh, Bureau, the Office of Special Counsel violations, and yet they keep happening. It's a total well, disdain for the rules. I,
0: I I was at the rally in Charleston, West Virginia, and it had all the the trappings of the president of the United States that you would on an official visit. However, it was it was a rally for for a candidate, and to me that was. One of the to me that, that that's a strict violation of the hatch Act
1: well, and is it not they're so they're so it depends on the circumstances you know, Obama would sometimes travel and rally for candidates, but the campaign paid, see what Trump is doing
0: well, no no the, yeah, he's not paying
1: yeah <laughs> he's saying, oh, I'm going to cut the ribbon on a gymnasium, and it just so happens, but he winks and talks about it he has such contempt for law and for all of our common sense. he makes clear no, these are not a official trips these are campaign trips well
0: the, the, that was a strict campaign trip in charleston there was no nothing
1: there except yeah. it was a rally for trump then trump has to pay for that trump has to pay for that but where they've gotten into trouble is official after official goes to these rallies and they use for example like a cabinet secretary will come and introduce him and use the official title Or Sarah Sanders, we've filed complaints against her. What has she done? Well, she'll go to one of those rallies and she'll use her official account or her official podium, to do political talk, which is forbidden, right? She can't endorse a candidate from her official Twitter account, for example. So we've filed complaints across the board. It's an epidemic. It matters because the taxpayers are entitled to know that their money that they're giving for government operations are not being turned into involuntary campaign donations, number one. But number two, it's the broken windows theory. You know, the broken windows theory is – that crime starts in a neighborhood when you have one building with a broken window. And that creates a climate of impunity and the crimes uh, start as been the sociologists, the social science have demonstrated the broken windows theory actually works. So what you need to do is repair the windows right away. Uh, the well, there's, White there's House no, there,
0: The White House has a lot of broken windows the these White days. The White House
1: can have the most beautiful, most historic, most important building in our country. It turns out in the world, uh, politically speaking, it turns out can have broken windows too. And uh, it's a big problem. And it's what's resulted in, for the first time in American history, less than two years into a presidency, you not only have this epidemic of violations among White House staff and cabinet members – Um, but you have a president who is a named subject of a criminal investigation. That is extraordinary.
0: Well, I think it's frightening that there are people who still don't see that. And I don't know that, I I don't know what the answer is. (laughs) Well. But I will present this to you. Okay, we're talking about ethics. And one of the things I like to do in this podcast is to um, talk about, uh, as a reporter, how you face the different things that we are talking about. I had an ethical challenge. There was, um, uh, I had a confidential source in a murder case. And uh, I was sat down in a court of law and an ACLU lawyer and a prosecutor both wow. asked me for my source. And you
1: didn't give it up, did you?
0: No, no. I went to jail four times. Wow. <laughs> and, wow. And, and that went to the Supreme I, Court. Wait
1: a minute. I am officially presenting you with the Ethics Czar's <laughs> badge of approval because well, you. you were willing – and this is very important. This relates to a debate that we're having in our country now uh, about the anonymous op-ed, which I, right. w- which I know I want we're to going to come to. Yeah. But those moments of courage – are very, very important. Now, I could give you the less good award, which is a sponge, in honor of my name, the fun sponge. But then you might have to do the dishes. So I'll give you the Ethics Czar's Award. um, And uh, I'll say that, uh, that the courage that you exhibited in doing that, those are the turning points of history. And what I write about in the book is Democracy does not only turn on the great events. My five people in the book, all of them experienced this over a course of a century. The small moments of courage or the failure to act courageously, those clump together, they add up. That's what changes history. So I write, for example, about how my German general, Alexander Toussaint, um, he wanted to turn Prague over to the Americans, to Patton. He turned on the SS at the end of the war. To save Prague and to save this beautiful house, it had bewitched him, captivated him that I write about, the last
0: palace. The one you, you lived the in. The one that
1: I lived in. Uh, I think Obama said you had a better
0: house than he did. He did.
1: <laughs> and you know what? You know who stopped him from doing that? And this was a failure. And these small failures have enormous effects. Our own American side and and, and a very well-known American, then General Supreme Commander, Dwight, Dwight D. Eisenhower wow. stopped him. Okay? That set up the fall of Prague to the communists several years later. They took Prague instead of the Americans. Americans. They had the hearts and minds. Three years later, the country falls to the communists. In part, it's because of that call that Ike made on the spot. Should I let pa- Patton wanted to go? He yes, wanted he to did. go meet the general. Should I let him or not? And so you, in your own way, by those four times, you refuse to give up your source. Uh, you know, you were acting courageously. Democracies rise or fall, and that. What happened finally? Did they leave finally leave you alone after the fourth time?
0: After uh, I was in jail for uh, several weeks, <clears throat> the the I had three sources that I protected, and the last source, who feared for her life, came forward after she moved out of the house, and uh, moved to California and came forward, and so I, I was released. I never gave her up, but. Um, I don't like using confidential sources, but when you do use them, you have to defend them. And so that brings me to the New York Times. They have allowed an anonymous op-ed. They know who it is, and they're defending their use of it. And there are people who think that whoever did this was courageous. There are others who think it was a bit of a soft coup and that they're not adults in the room because You may or may not have voted for Donald Trump, but you didn't vote for a staffer, (laughs) right? So there are those who are – and you have defended the soft coup. To the
1: hilt. Tell me why. To the hilt, because I don't think it's a soft coup. What do you think it is? Um, I think it's an act of civil disobedience 21st century style. You don't and, think it's
0: some guy who wants to guarantee he's got a job in the uh, in the Heritage Foundation? When well,
1: they... I'll tell you what—he also will get the uh, Ethics czar seal of approval Far when out. he steps forward, and he um,
0: will. Whoever it is, we'll, there are you know, no secrets in DC. There, there are no are secrets. No we <laughs> both know that
1: we're swamp dwellers, Brian, <laughs> yeah, and true. we know there are no secrets. They in all the come swamp. out. All those alligators got to come out on land eventually. Um here's my thinking about anonymous. And I wrote this, I you know, the, the the wonderful and terrible thing about the age of social media that we live in, and having just spent the past four years dwelling over the past hundred years, uh, and, and the transformation is amazing. I had a snap reaction to that op-ed, and I didn't stop to think about what anybody else was tweeting or saying. I saw it, and I immediately tweeted a note. Dear Anonymous, you are a hero. I give you the ethics award of the day. People will attack you. Boy, I didn't imagine. Yeah. That's baloney. You're doing the right thing. And my judgment was, uh, and then I found myself uh, in the middle of a fight, and I ultimately wrote a much longer piece on CNN.com. Defending Anonymous, explaining the theory. And fundamentally, um, you know, my my defense of Anonymous was informed by my study of the 20th century, past 100 years, up to the present, 1918, when Wilson made his move and started the modern era of liberal, transatlantic liberal democracy. Uh, There have been many regimes where actually following the law, and all of my protagonists encountered this at one point or another. Following the law uh, that is on the books, the positive law, means violating the moral law. It means doing the unethical thing. And I don't want to compare Trump to these other leaders. No, like you said, he's a Penny Annie operator. And not only because he's Penny Annie, but I, he's, you know, it's a totally different situation to compare him. I, I think when people are too quick to compare him to Hitler and Stalin and he's a fascist and they're doing a disservice to the, uh, he's plenty bad. Don't get me wrong. He's the worst (laughs) we've seen in modern times. Without a doubt. Uh, Morally the worst, but uh, um, my wife and I were having a debate last night, you know, uh, comparing Trump and Nixon. Now, that's a fair comparison. That Trump is and the comparison yeah. you could compare. I, we think, you know, Nixon did so much good. If you look at Nixon on the environment versus right. Trump on the environment. If you look at Nixon's smart engagement with Russia and China versus Trump's dumb engagement with those two but countries. But
0: Adelaide Stevenson said something about Nixon that I remember that reminds me of Trump. He, he, and this was in 52. He said that Nixon was the type of guy that would chop down a redwood and take the stump and uh, bronze it and then preach about saving trees.
1: Uh, well, Nixon did have a dose of hypocrisy, and you saw it in the McCarthy era, and you know, yeah. the shameful way he went after Helen Gag and Douglas. But
0: I don't think that compares to what we see now. So,
1: But there's a big change that I discovered that goes to, from the Nixon era, actually, uh, and I write about this in, in my Defense of Anonymous, to the present. And that change is that in the time of... Nixon and Daniel Ellsberg. Ellsberg did his civil disobedience. He, like Anonymous, he broke the law. Actually, Anonymous, you can't point to a law that he's breaking. He's breaking a norm of following right. the chain of command. Amore. <laughs> uh, Ellsberg um, violated the law, arguably. He was at risk of violating the law by releasing, copying and releasing the Pentagon Papers. Ellsberg then stepped forward and took his medicine because he had faith in the justice system. Today, the punishment can be so draconian, Ellsberg has explained, that you don't have to take your, your your medicine quite the same way. So I think it's legitimate. What Anonymous is doing is an act of civil disobedience. The school bus driver is crazy. And some aid has to be on that bus to keep the driver from going off the side of the cliff because the bus is full of innocent people. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and Hundreds so of millions of them. what Anonymous is doing is an act of civil disobedience against this norm. But I say at the end, when Trump is gone, that is the time, just like Ellsberg, just like civil disobedience requires, you come and you take your punishment. So I think Anonymous should step forward. He or she's going to be out it anyhow. They might as well do it themselves on their terms. On their terms, and say, okay, I'm ready to take my punishment, and I'll I'll be the first to defend them when that happens.
0: Well, my first reaction when I read it was, holy shit! <laughs> that, was, that was my first, and then my second reaction was not, who wrote it? Because, as you said, being a swamp dweller, I figure we're going to find out sooner or later. Yeah. And you know, if I if I'm able to find out and bust it fine. I don't care. But what I do care about is it left me with two big questions. Why did they do it and who's in charge in the White House? It's frightening to me that there are people that are actively working against the president that say that there are adults in the room and evidently the president There are people afraid of him being in charge.
1: Well, you know, the why did they do it is a hard one. It calls for literary analysis. All we know is what's on the page of the New York Times, um, what's on our screen. And I
0: figured there was more than one person involved in it.
1: Uh, Possibly. We know there was a reference to an intermediary who made the connection with the Times. So I don't doubt that there are hundreds of uh, anonymi. Uh, throughout the White House and the Trump administration. I'm sure there are. Um, You know, the motives are complicated. What we have is the statement and the context for the statement and our experience. Uh, You and I between us have more decades than we care to admit (laughs) dealing with this crazy federal government here. Uh, My own assessment Uh, is that Anonymous is a person acting in good faith. It's not a false flag operation. It's not a distraction operation by Trump. Trump is not setting up a deep state. This is a person. It's Ivanka. This is a conservative (laughs) person. Ivanka is not as conservative, I believe, (laughs) as Anonymous. This is a conservative person. Genuinely, those are true statements in the article. And look, I write for the Times. I turned in a piece right before I came into the podcast. So I know how they fact check each and every jot and tittle, and this yeah. got a double and triple fact check because of the unique circumstances. So I think it's for real. Um, you know, uh, uh, and I think it's a person who actually had a good impulse to, um, say, un- again, under the theory of civil disobedience, okay, I can't give my name. How much transparency? Can I afford to do without compromising my mission? This was a reasonable thing to at least let the country know what Anonymous is doing. Right. Uh, but you know.
0: And I, why they had the authority to say what they said.
1: But I could be wrong. And in terms of your question, who's in charge? Uh, the inmates are running the asylum. I mean, Trump See, I don't think is, anybody's running it. Trump is. Uh, Trump is doing. Trump is doing his best. He gets a hold of some issues. He gets distracted. You know, they're giving him some bright shiny toys to play with so that he doesn't mess with the rest of government. Look at General Mattis, Defense Secretary Mattis, brilliant guy, scholar warrior, um, a man of the highest integrity, uh, someone I'm thrilled is there managing the defense department. Thank God. He does his thing, and somehow he's managed, for the most part, to keep Trump out of his business. The Pentagon functions as a normal Pentagon. We're even improving some things. We got a NATO communique, uh, represented us as ambassador in a NATO country. We got a NATO communique strengthening defenses against Russia in the era of Trump. Now, they had to fool Trump and work out the language in advance, <laughs> distract him a little bit. Uh, uh, but we did get that communique. And that's important because, again, looking at these five lives I write about, including my own mom, sent me back to live in the house I want to talk about occupied that by the Nazis as a Czechoslovak Holocaust survivor to send me back to live in that house. So we have a sense of history in in, in our family and, and I capture that in this book.
0: Yes, at the beginning of that book, I hate to interrupt you, but no, it's, go so, ahead. it's it's so fascinating to me. <laughs> at the beginning of your book, um, she says, you know, she was afraid for you to go back there that they would kill you.
1: Yeah, she was. She was scared. You know, I and, thought- and and
0: setting it up. I mean, you were going back to Czechoslovakia as the ambassador to live in this large palace that had been had belonged to uh, a Jewish gentleman, and it was taken from him. Yes, correct. And so you're coming. But the irony of that is so overwhelming to me. But you know, World War II is long gone. Um, you know, the Holocaust is over and yet your mother was afraid for you as the ambassador from the United States to go back there and live in that home.
1: Um, You know, uh, one of first the, of
0: all, I love your mother just from the way yeah, you wrote about it. she was a character. And
1: every exchange that you and readers will find in here between me and my mom, she wins. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like my mom. And she had a great she had a, including using her sense of humor, she had a great cutting sense of humor that was a survival tool that helped her get through this tumultuous century. I mean, she lived and through she survived. She was- incredible. She, where was she she was she survived she grew auschwitz. up in a small village in czechoslovakia was deported to the ghetto then to auschwitz then uh munitions plant uh, slave labor at the end of the war in germany and then came back rebuilt her life and brian she had it knocked out a second time by communism and and that double whammy the weight of history was much heavier on, heavier on her than I realized. And she tries to warn me. It's a theme. The way the book is set up, we start with me and my mom. I call her from Air Force One. That's the beginning of the book. Then the rest of the book, you don't see me again until the very end of the book, chapter 16, because the rest of the book is the story, stories of these four other characters starting in 1918 with the optimistic Jew. <laughs> German General who replaced him the Cold War American ambassador tried to prevent the Soviet takeover of the domination of the Czechs from that house and then the the movie star ambassador who helped end the Cold War from that house, Shirley Temple, with my mom's story woven in chronologically um so you don't see me again till chapter sixteen. But when you do see me in the as as the incoming ambassador in the beginning of the book and the end of the book it's always talking to my mom about what to do and she's trying to warn me and I do wake up uh to the threat that we now see the the rising Russian threat the threat of illiberalism the people who hate democracy the anti-democratic forces the autocrats um I, My mom sees that coming again, the great cycle of of democratic surge and anti-democratic reaction. It's coming again, and she tries to warn me. Eventually, I wake up. We take it on. I don't want to give away the ending, but together we fight the good fight against today's extremists and haters and tyrants and autocrats.
0: Do you think, do you have... Are you optimistic for the future? Are you pessimistic? Are you skeptical? How the would you-
1: number one lesson of these, of the past hundred years, 1918 to 2018, as seen through the windows of the last palace and the lives of these five people, the optimistic Jew, the complicated, compromised German general, the uh, American Cold Warrior, and the movie star ambassador end of the Cold War, and my mom, who's... Made it through that whole century. The main lesson of those five people is that if you are clear-eyed about the threat and you see it coming, that democracy will always win. Democracy is stronger than autocracy. It's stronger uh, than than the other regimes. Uh, The only question is how long when the eclipse, right, when this anti-democratic – figures pass across the sun of democracy. How long will the eclipse be? Um, Right now, I'm fighting very hard in my 300 plus matters at my watchdog. I want a short Trump to be a short (laughs) eclipse. (laughs) And we're talking significantly during the time uh, frame when the Manafort plea deal has dropped. That's another sign that this is going to be a short eclipse.
0: Well, but to be a short eclipse... When I look at, at democracy and I look at self-government, it, it demands a certain amount of participation from everyone. And I know of precincts near here where you only get 10 to 15% turnout. People are so, um, convinced that they can't fight city hall and they're so busy with their own lives getting their kids to soccer practice going to the doctors buying groceries that they forget that everything that makes that possible is participation yes is that not a
1: it's the foundation you vote it's the ultimate i never miss a vote it's the ultimate uh it's the ultimate uh, 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 safeguard the ultimate defense is the voters and the will of the voters. Uh, the um, I'm not guaranteeing when I say I'm telling you, I'm guaranteeing that Trump is not, uh, cannot, nobody can survive. And I've been saying this for months now the gathering, it's like the ice on a plane. Yes, and every additional drop of water that freezes on those wings. Uh, The plane still flies. And you say, oh, it's just one drop, but there's that last drop. Right. Okay. Nobody can survive politically the amount of ice that is accumulating as this plane flies, continues to fly through the clouds. And it's starting to struggle now with Trump's poll after poll. He's polling in the mid-30s. That is not a sustainable number to hang on to the House. People are starting to talk about the Senate being in play possibly. We're not there yet. Yeah. If he loses a little bit more altitude, we will be. Um But uh, what it says to me,
0: all of that talk is is fine talking, but when you look at the at Congress, I'm not real thrilled with what I see over there. Well, on there's been side a of lack the aisle.
1: of over, well, <laughs> there's been a lack of oversight by the current majority. We'll see if Congress, the house changes hands, I believe there will be more oversight. I'm not saying <laughs> To answer your question, will Trump be impeached? That's kind of tough because you got to get two-thirds of the Senate to convict. I don't convict. think he will be. Is he going to be prosecuted? That's a little tough because DOJ has a memo, can't prosecute. It's wrong. Right. I've written at length. It's wrong. A president can be prosecuted. But I know Bob Mueller. I've worked with him and against him. He's not going to defy DOJ precedent. He might name the president an unindicted co-conspirator.
0: And toss it over to Congress and tell them what to do with it. He
1: might seek a tolling agreement. Mr. President, I'm going to prosecute you when you leave office. And the president say, no, I don't sign. And then Bob goes to uh, the judge uh, like Jaworski did. uh for uh, permission to report out to Congress. There's a lot of different ways that it could be sliced. Mueller's not going to directly defy DOJ. But the ultimate safeguard is Vote the American people. Right. And in some ways, that'll be the healthiest if the American people, if he goes out the same way he came in. Uh, but on the other hand, one thing I also know, it's like when I uh, tell you a, a funny story um
0: we like funny stories here i uh
1: i i uh was talking to people uh i, I was silent on twitter on the manafort plea and uh, somebody who yeah you know, i'm lucky to have my my twitter friends i love my twitter community <laughs> um at norm eisen if you want to join join the fun um and my my uh twitter friends were saying why aren't you saying anything i'm saying i'm waiting for the allocution. I've learned 30 painful years. I should get my thing and show you the note I sent to this person. Um, 30 years of doing law have told me, you've gonna get surprises. And that is, and you know, everybody was surprised. Cooperation deal when yeah. there was none with Cohen. Um, so fortunately I hadn't embarrassed myself by saying, there's there'll be no way Manafort has <laughs> a cooperation deal. Um, So we don't know, before you rule out any of these vehicles, we don't know what those next drops of water are going to be. We don't know as we sit here what Manafort, he's already met with the prosecutors, and his plea deal is extraordinary. No lawyers present. That's amazing to me. Why? Could it be because the lawyers were themselves involved? I'm only asking the question, I'm not making an accusation, in obstruction, that the president Directly or through Rudy Giuliani or somebody else said, You shut up, Paul. I got your back. I'm going to give you a pardon. Now, Manafort was right because the president is a proven liar, 5,000 lies. Right. Manafort decided he was safer (laughs) with with, somebody
0: who actually told the truth. He was safer
1: with somebody who actually told the truth. Um, But I think that uh, 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 we don't know what's coming. So all I know is no plane can fly with (laughs) this amount of, uh, ice, uh, accumulated on its wings. wings.
0: Well, that's uh, you know we're gonna I we could do this for a long. We time. We could. This <laughs> is great. We'll have to do it so again. So
1: interesting. Yeah, have me back. Please. I would love
0: to, uh, Norm. I, I thank you for being here this afternoon, uh, and I'd love to have you back again. And there are all kinds of stories that we can get into about Rahm Emanuel and uh, Barack Obama. Yeah, we got a lot to tell. Yeah, Another book a, worth. Brian, yeah.
1: let me say three things. First of all, I sure. love what you do. Thank you. In the White House. Secondly. I grew up reading Playboy, not just for the pictures, the great writing in that publication. So it's a me particular too. it's a it's it's a particular pleasure, you know. It's that sense, uh, uh that sense of the history, history of that uh, publication. And number three, great questions. Thank you for thank oh, you for those those wonderful questions and for letting me talk about the last palace.
0: I and where can we get it? Last palace.
1: You can get last last palace uh at at any independent bookseller near you at the at the chain booksellers or on the uh internet or penguin random house website prh.com backslash last palace there you go
0: (laughs) thanks for being with us norm i am brian kerman this is just ask the question and that's what i do just ask the question thanks we'll catch you next time